Thank you for joining the Home Church Podcast. For more information, visit us at myhomechurch.org. Amen. Good morning, guys. I said good morning. <laughs> good to be with you. Good to be with you. Yes. <laughs> um, man, I know we said it before, but if you missed yesterday, I'm, I'm sorry. It was such an amazing time, and I just want to personally say thank you to everyone that served. Uh, 140 kids, I think, is what the number was, and it was just, just amazing. And when I tell you they got gifts, they got gifts. <laughs> they were hooked up. Uh, we just finished off singing there, The God Who Comes, The God Who Comes. I think it's quite fitting for this morning, uh, actually for the next few weeks as we're getting ready to celebrate the birth of, of Jesus, our Savior. I mentioned last week, and I said we get into this, and over, um, over this week at, at SUM Chapel, we started to speak into this, but I have been personally stirred by the idea of Advent, and I know that it's a word that we use a lot in our culture. My kids have Advent calendars. <laughs> um, yeah, I know that we're familiar with it, but I'm really stirred by the idea of Christ coming and then Christ coming again. And uh, we're going to spend the next few weeks just really entering into what that means, that he came and that he's going to come again. And, and I just feel a, so much life on this. I really do. And especially this morning. So we're going, to jump, we're going to jump into this kind of right away because I want to give room to really celebrate that he came uh, at, the end of the, uh, at the end of today. That, that's the idea. Um, before I jump into the text, I just want everyone to really lean in for this for a moment. I want to make sure we're on the same page because I know we throw out terms like Advent and sometimes we say these things and we don't really fully grasp what they mean. But when we talk about Advent, uh, Advent comes from the Latin word Adventus, which means coming. Or, or arrival or presence. And so on, in, if you were to look this up in the English dictionary, it literally means the arrival of a notable person. So we talk about Advent, we're talking about the arrival of a notable person. So I want you to just picture for a moment, imagine if there was some type of royal official, a president or a king who was preparing to visit another nation. The nation that's getting ready to receive that king would technically be in an Advent season. They would be preparing themselves for the arrival of this notable person. So when we celebrate Advent here as Christians, we're talking about the arrival of Jesus, which notable person is such an <laughs> understatement. God came in the flesh. We're talking about the idea that he came, and then again that he's, he's going to come again. And so Advent is actually a season marked by anticipation, preparation, like expectation, it's a season that's marked by waiting, longing, and looking for God. And there's really, as I've said, there's really two Advents or two comings. On one sense, what we're doing around this time of the year is we're actually looking back and reflecting on the first coming, the first Advent of Jesus. And when we do that, it stirs our hearts with gratitude and awe. When you start to think about that he came, why he came, how he came, what has come because he's here, heaven on earth. Uh, and so in one sense, we're looking back but at the same time, Advent is not only a reflection of, a reflection of looking back, it's also a, a preparation of looking forward to when he comes again. So technically, we're actually living in this tension of two Advents right now. Uh, being that Jesus already come, we have 
Again, this idea where we're looking back, reflecting, but also in that process, we're preparing our hearts for when he comes again. And I, I just want to say that the two Advents are deeply connected. You cannot separate them. The Jesus of Christmas is the same Jesus of Armageddon. And Revelation 11 says that there is a day coming when all kingdoms of this earth will eventually become his kingdom in, in the sense that we will see it in its fullness. It's actually already happened. But before that can take place, he had to get the kingdom on the inside of us. The first coming of Jesus, the first advent was unto him dealing with the tyranny of sin in our own lives. He first came to deliver us from self, which is unto him returning and seeing a full deliverance of this earth unto his leadership. So this is kind of where we're going to be looking over the next uh, few weeks, whether it's just next, this week and next week or, or maybe one more week after that. But I want us to focus on these two advents. And specifically what I want to look at today is just the first coming, the first advent of Jesus. And I want to, I want to take you to what it is. We're going to kind of now go into the deep end of this. That was just to be on the same page. Uh, we're going to go into what is arguably my most, famous, uh, my most favorite Christmas passage. <laughs> Uh, outside of Simeon and Anna, which is like probably, I think, still like top notch for me. Uh, we may share a little bit of that next week. But outside of that, this is my favorite Christmas passage, and it's usually a passage you probably never associate with it. So I want you to turn with me to the book of <laughs> Revelation. <laughs> you knew it. I want you to turn me to Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12. For those of you who are on a, on a, have the digital Bible, I'm reading the ESV if you want to get the same version. You know, it was just said before that the word of the Lord can change the trajectory of someone's life. I just feel to say that right now. Uh, if you notice the callings of the prophets in the Old Testament, notice how they're called. It says the word of the Lord came to them. It's really interesting. It says the word of the Lord and I just imagine you've got these men that are kind of going along the, you know, life. Their, their life is on one trajectory. And in a moment, the word of the Lord comes to them. And in a moment, when they yield their life to that word, their entire life changes. Their entire life changes. So I, I just feel to say that as the word of the Lord comes, it's going to come and touch hearts and forever change your life. So Revelation 12, we're going to lock into this first coming of Jesus. In a more traditional sense, Advent, maybe you've celebrated this way. There's usually four Sundays leading up to the birth of Christ, and usually they're themed. It's, I don't know if this is exact order, but it's hope, uh, peace, love, and joy. Uh, as we prepare our hearts for his coming, we think about the one who's living hope. He's the Prince of Peace. He's the Fountain of Joy. He's the perfect picture of love embodied. Uh, so Revelation chapter 12, though, is going to be really locked into the first advent. This, we're going to only read the first five verses, guys. I don't think you're ready for this. <laughs> this is so good. This is so intense. I, I absolutely love it. In five verses, in five verses, I don't know if there's a, a better place in the Bible that captures the depth and intensity and buildup and significance of the first advent. In just five verses, literally, these five verses span several thousands of years of anticipation for the first coming of Christ. From this, these first few verses span from Genesis to Bethlehem, to the first Christmas. In just a few verses, we're going to catch the entirety of this. 
And, uh, and I'm just going to kind of read through this, and then we're going to step back, and uh, we're going to go through a little bit of a journey from Genesis back into this and see it. But here's what I want to say. This is really important so that we're on the same page for this book. I know for some, Revelation can be challenging, uh, and, I, and I get that. All I want to say is this. We're going to make it really simple. We're only reading the first five verses. Revelation is highly symbolic because it is, it is apocalyptic literature. We don't even have a grid for that because we don't read apocalyptic literature anymore. But everything is highly symbolic. It even calls these things signs to make it even clear. But here's what I want you to know. These first five verses have three figures that we're going to read about. There is a woman, there is a dragon, and there is a child. Okay? John's seeing visions and all of these things, and he's seeing visions of these things, but they all mean uh, incredibly important things. There's a woman... There's a dragon and there's a child. Who is the child? It's Jesus. The, the dragon is representative of Satan. Okay, this is the vision that John's seeing in the heavens is representative of Satan. And the woman, for at least the first five verses that we're reading, is, is rooted in Old Testament Israel. There's images of Mary and Eve come forth. And I would make the case, if you keep reading this, I think it even morphs into actually more of the new covenant believers. But that's a different story. But for these first five verses, the, the woman, the mother, represents Israel. You guys with me? So you've got Israel, the dragon, and you've got this, the, the, which is Satan, and you've got the child, which is Jesus. So let's read this together. Revelation chapter 12, verse 1, it says, And a great sign appeared in heaven, seeing a vision. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. Now there is so much we could press into this on what these things mean regarding this woman. It speaks to power, brilliance, radiance. It's really fascinating to see Israel and even the church at some point. Uh, this is how we actually are seen in the spirit realm, uh, as radiant and beautiful and powerful. But ultimately what I want you to see is that this description, it gets, it's connected to a, a dream that Joseph had in the Old Testament. Joseph in Genesis 37, how many remember Joseph with the coat of many colors, right? He had 11 brothers. He gets sold into slavery by his brothers, gets raised up to second hand uh, with Pharaoh. What's being, what's being played on here is that vision, that dream. And Joseph had a dream in Genesis 37.9 where he saw a sun and a moon, which represented his parents, Jacob and Rachel. And then he said, I saw 11 stars bowing down to me. This is what we're reading here. And the 11 stars represented his brothers. And the idea, just to be clear, so that you understand, I'm not just making this up, this is representative, this woman that's being described is, is representative of not just Israel, but specifically the faithful remnant of Israel. It's the righteous remnant of Israel that's being played on here. And here's where it begins to pick up for us for Advent. Verse 2 says this, She, meaning this woman, Israel, was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. <laughs> I love this. this. This is imagery of Israel laboring with God to carry the promise of the Messiah into this earth. And what this is saying is that this woman, Israel, God had released a promise that we're going to see in a moment, goes back to Genesis 3, that from Israel a seed would come forth that would ultimately be the deliverer for the entire world. And what this is saying is that it's giving a description of, if you can imagine, uh, the scriptures in the Old Testament picture, Israel's a woman. She is a woman 
that has been impregnated, if you would, to use that imagery, from the Lord with a promise that through you, a Messiah is coming, a deliverer is coming, and he's going to not only rescue you, but he's going to be a light unto the Gentiles and to the entire world. To the entire world. It says that she was crying out. We're going to see this. Guys, this is so beautiful. There has been a deep cry that was put on the inside of Israel that for generation after generation, they had been looking for the one that God said would be birthed through their nation. There was a cry that was coming out of Israel saying, God, when will he come? Beloved, I want you to know that this, this cry, this is the cry of Christmas. This is the Christmas spirit. You say, what is the spirit of Christmas? It is something so much deeper than a, than a commercialized feeling of excitement. We should have excitement, but it's bigger than receiving presents. The cry of Christmas is simple. It's Messiah, come. Deliverer, come. Liberator, come. Light of the world, come. And set us free. Set us free from our oppressors. Set us free from the kingdom of darkness and establish your rule and reign on the earth forever. The crying out that it says that has been building up over the generations is a deep aching. It's a groan. It's a longing. It's a pining of the soul to say, Lord, when will you send the one that you had promised? One of my favorite Christmas songs is O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, and Rescue Captive Israel, that mourns in lonely, lonely exile here until the Son of God appears. You've got to feel that. That is the heart of Christmas right there. It is Israel saying, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, when will you come? When will Deliverer come? When will Messiah come? Rescue us, for we are, we are captives. We are bound. God, when will you deliver the one that you said would be delivered through us? Israel was going to deliver their own deliverer. <laughs> That's the imagery here. When will you come? This is the spirit of Christmas. And this cry, guys, the cry of Advent, you know, when we celebrate Christmas season now, and it's appropriate because Christ has already come, but if you think about it, typically we enter Christmas season, Advent season when? We enter it usually December 1st, Right? Or maybe I don't know how you do it after, right after uh, Thanksgiving. Uh, I never like to violate Thanksgiving. I, I put Christmas, Christmas aside. Although this year, we needed the spirit of Christmas a little bit earlier. So we, we went a week early. But some of you have different traditions. As a whole, we all know as a culture, December 1st, we're locked into Advent season. That's fine as long as you know that the first Advent was not four weeks. It was more like 4,000 years. Going back to Genesis 3, there was a cry that we're going to see in just a moment that when God said, I'm coming to save you with this Redeemer, Israel had been looking for when this seed would come forth. Guys, Christmas didn't start in America. <laughs> it started a few thousand years ago in the Middle East when God promised a Jewish king was going to come forth and rule the nations. See, gratitude and awe starts hitting our heart when we start recognizing and seeing the glorious, incredible storyline that we've been grafted into. And one of the places that we're going to be going is just as Israel labored to carry the promise of the first coming, I believe God now is impregnating the church to carry and labor for the second coming of Christ. And there's going to be a people that are going to be found saying, like the spirit and the bride say, come again, Lord, come again. Just as you came the first time, Lord, we pray that you would do it again. So they were, she was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains. You know, I love that. Let me just say this on birth pains. That word in the Greek is bansidzo. Bansidzo. In other places in the New Testament, 
It's translated as persecution, suffering, torment, trial. In other words, what this is describing is the suffering and persecution Israel endured to carry the Messiah. Can I just say something personal? Some of you guys may not even understand why you're going through what you go through, but it has everything to do with what you carry. It has everything to do with what you carry. And we're going to see in just a moment, the dragon's going to appear on the scene to try to snuff out this seed because he knows if it comes forth, it's the end of him. And something that this story does to me is that I feel a gratitude in my heart when I start thinking about the faithful remnant of Israel that carried this seed despite the persecution and the waiting. Like, I thank God for my Jewish brothers and sisters who said yes to this call, the Davids and the prophets that labored for this even when they couldn't see it through the rebellion, they said yes to the Lord, and now we get to bear the fruit of their yes. So verse 3, she's pregnant. Israel's pregnant, looking and longing. And then verse 3 says, And another sign appeared in heaven. <laughs> Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. Again, very symbolic. Let me say, every time God puts something in you, not to, I don't mean to sound corny, but this is real. The dragon always shows up. Every time God begins to put something in you to do something, you will find the dragon always shows up to try to, try to get you to abort it, either by discouragement or distraction. Get so discouraged, you never think it's going to come, you just put it away, or we get caught up in the wrong thing or trying to do it the wrong way, and we get distracted from it. Every single time that happens, you'll find that the dragon will show up in some way to try to take out what God has put in you. Now again, I'm not going to press every detail here, but it mentions that this, this dragon has seven heads, ten horns, and on his head seven diadems, which is like a, a, a decorated crown. Here's what you need to know. The crowns and the horns are representative of power, and seven and ten is representative of fullness, complete. So what this is saying is that this dragon, it's saying it has this complete power. Now I want to be really clear. The Lamb of God has seven horns. There's only one who has all power. What this is saying is that whatever power this dragon has, we're about to see, he exerts all of it into one specific place. It's not that he has all power. What it's saying is that all the power that he does have, he's after one single thing. There's one thing that he wants to stop. <laughs> Let's read it. <laughs> Verse 4. His tail swept down a third of the stars. This is the fall in the beginning. I won't get into all that. And cast them to the earth. And here's what I want you to see. And the dragon. Here's what all of his powers is after. This is what he wants to do. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. <laughs> all of his focus and effort is unto one thing. This is one of, guys, this single verse is one of the greatest summaries of the entire Old Testament. God said his seed's coming forth who will be the deliverer. The serpent knew that it would come, and therefore, from the moment that God said that promise, the imagery is that he's been standing over Israel trying to find where this child will come from. He's been looking for this, uh, this child. It says he stood, which means he's taken an active position, wondering where will the child come from because he does not want to come to the earth. Therefore, in the days of Moses, you find that when there was a promised deliverer, what happened? 
This dragon works through Pharaoh to wipe out all the children to and under, but he could not snuff it out. <laughs> In the days of Jesus, when Herod found out there would be another king, what happened? The serpent works through Herod to try to kill all the children to and under, but he could not snuff it out. This is the Old Testament summary. God says a seed's coming forth, and the serpent has been trying to find out. All, the Old Testament is a, is a picture of all of the rage of this serpent trying to stop this promised child from coming into the earth. And the question really begins to arise as you read the Old Testament and even this text is will the serpent, will Satan be successful in his intentions to, to devour this heavenly child? Now, obviously, I can give you the obvious answer to this. <laughs> but sometimes we can have such a fast answer and not feel the weight of that. And so before I just tell you what we probably already know in this room, I want you to really feel and enter into the story of this conflict and hostility of a woman, Israel, giving birth, waiting, and this, this serpent trying to snuff it out, and God being so faithful along the way. So that when we get into verse 5, something's going to hit your heart, I believe, that like, will change your, your, your entire perspective of what we, what we celebrate at this time of the year. Does that sound good? So keep your spot in Revelation 12. I want you to very quickly, I want you to just come with me to Genesis 3. Keep, that, keep a spot in Genesis 12, uh, Revelation 12 because we're going to come right back. And verse, verse 5 of Revelation 12 is the key. But I, I want to I basically very quickly just highlight a few parts to show you what we just read in verse 4. Israel's pregnant with the seed and the dragon is searching out. And I want to come into Genesis chapter 3 where this, this, uh, this promise begins. Everyone there? Genesis chapter 3. I'm going to read one single verse. When you come into Genesis chapter 3, most of the time, our, our first thought, and understandably and rightfully so, is we think the fall, and we think all of the curses that ensue with that, all the things that follow after that. We think of Adam and Eve being in the glory in the garden, walking with God, perfect communion, no veil, no hindrances. They sin, it's shattered, and then God comes to them into the garden. And God begins to just really speak what is the natural consequences of this decision. But I want you to know in the midst of all of this, hope begins to burst forth. And what I want to read specifically is verse 15. When God turns to the serpent, the deceiver who brought this into the earth. And I want you to hear the curse that God speaks over the serpent, the dragon, Satan himself. He says this, Genesis 3 verse 15. He says, I will put enmity, hostility. This is dragon standing over the woman right here. The hostility starts right here. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, Eve, and between your offspring and her offspring. And he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So I want you to see this in the midst of so much pain, loss, tragedy a perfect God would have every right to say I'm out <laughs> you would think he would just say I'm done but instead what you find is God coming to his children that have just rejected him and he's essentially saying in this verse I'm coming to save you I'm coming to save you 
I'm coming to save you. Say, how? He says, this is what I'm going to do. I am going to bring a seed that's going to come forth through Eve. There is going to be a descendant, an offspring of Eve, that, that's entire destiny will be this. He is going to crush the head of the serpent, the dragon. And in the process, his heel will be bruised. You know what this is an imagery of? It literally is in the natural an image of a man coming up to a snake and with such violent force dealing a death blow to the snake by stomping on it, but in the process, his heel gets bruised. And the idea is that this is atonement, guys. This is a cross. Jesus will deal a death blow to the dragon at the cross, but in order to do it, he will take on the suffering himself. Isaiah 53 says he was pierced for our transgressions. He was bruised, bruised for our iniquities. It's a picture that at the cross, he crushed the head of the dragon, but in the process, he said, I must be bruised for you. I must be bruised in order for you to be set free. And right here, guys, right here, you see the trajectory of the Old Testament set. For now, Israel is constantly looking for this seed, and yet so is the serpent or the dragon or Satan himself. For as I've said before, he knows when this seed comes, not only is it redemption for his people, but he knows it's the end of him. <laughs> and so the whole Old Testament, guys, you have to hear this. The whole Old Testament is building every promise, every prophecy. They're getting, see, this is so vague, but every prophet and every king that comes along and every, every priest that God speaks through, it's like it gets clearer and clearer and clearer. And the buildup is growing and growing. And Satan is trying to find this seed because he said, if he comes, it's over. <laughs> it's over if he comes. Do you, know, do you know why there's so many genealogies in the Old Testament? <laughs> I mean, let's just be honest. A few son of, son of, son of, and I'm out. I'm like, all right, I, I, I'm moving on to the next book. Do you, but we read through this. Do you know why? Because they're constantly tracking the lineage back to Eve to know where the seed's coming. They're always looking, where's this promised child coming? Where is he coming from? They're tracking the whole family line saying, we know exactly the one he's going to come through. Do you know why one of the major themes in the scriptures, have you ever noticed that there's a major theme of the barrenness of women and that God miraculously opens their womb and they, gives birth, and they give birth. I actually went through this and I found seven women that were barren. And at a certain time, God miraculously opens, breathes on their womb and they, give, and they give birth to a miraculous child. For example, the patriarchs. God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Do you know if you reverse that and put the, the wives there, it's the God of Sarah, Rebecca, and Rachel. Do you know all three of them were barren? All three of them were infertile? All three of them could not have children, some of them 30 plus years. But at a certain point, God opened up their womb and where they were barren, now a miraculous child came forth. Why? Because he was giving the earth a foretaste that one day I will open the barren womb of Israel and I will bring the greatest child you've ever seen. And with every miraculous intervention to a personal woman, he was preparing the hearts of his people to get connected with the larger story that I'm going to bring this seed one day to the earth. Amen. Isaiah 54, when the Messiah comes, God commands Israel, he says, sing aloud, O barren one. You, he, says, he says, shout, you who are desolate, he says, uh, for you who have not bore, bared, or for you who have not been in labor, for the children of the desolate one, the barren one, will outnumber the children of her who is married. 
Israel, the barren one, was waiting. Every time you see God open the womb of Hannah, Manoah's wife, Samson, was born from a woman who was infertile. Uh, Elizabeth, John the Baptist, she could not have a child. God opened it. Every single time, God says, he's coming. He's coming. The seed is coming. And so as you track this through, you track the lineage, you eventually find that the seed of Eve will intersect with a man by the name of David. And David's leadership is set apart. And David, I want you to hear this. David, when he was leading, when he was leading, he took over for Israel. The nation of Israel was approximately the size of the state of Maryland. By the time David was done, it became the most dominant world empire. The Jews referred to this as the golden age. They had military conquest, economic prosperity, and the borders expanded. And when David died, his son took over Solomon. And for a moment, they experienced this golden age for a while, but then Solomon fell into compromise. And eventually, the kingdom that was expanding began to shrink back, and actually, it was torn into two. And from that moment, the cry began to deepen for, the, for God to send one like David. But I want you to hear this so clearly. They didn't just ask for another David, and they didn't just ask for a brother of David. They specifically asked for the son of David. They asked for the child of David. For they knew that the seed of Eve will also be the child of David. And therefore they said, when will the son of David come? That we will be returned back to this golden age where the kingdom of God will be on earth and it will never go backwards. <laughs> well, you keep tracking this and you get to the prophets. And all of them are prophesying about the Messiah, but none captures it like Isaiah. Especially when it, when it talks about the coming of a child. I want you to turn with me Isaiah chapter 9. Stay with me. We're about to come back into this in Revelation. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. Do you see this, this buildup? The seed of Eve, you could stop in so many places, is now the son of David. The serpent is trying to find where this is coming. God's people are looking for it. And you finally come to the prophets. Here's another great section. This is about 700 years prior to the birth of Christ. Isaiah was prophesying, and he gets a vision. And I don't think he fully probably grasped what he was getting, but he started to get greater clarity on what God was going to do. And Isaiah 9, verse 6 and 7, here's what it says. For unto us a child is born. A seed is going to come. A child is born. And for unto us a son is given. That's not just being repetitive. It's speaking to two sides of Jesus. A child is born is his humanity. A son is given speaks to his divinity. The son of God will be given. Isaiah, I don't know if he fully grasped all of this, but he saw this God child that was going to come to the earth. Somehow God and man would be fused into one. And here's how he describes this child. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. And here's one of my favorite parts of it, verse 7. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. So Isaiah saw this child, that's the seed of Eve, the son of David, and said when he comes, the increase of his government and peace will know no end. In other words, Isaiah saw a child who would establish the kingdom of God on earth. And beloved, this kingdom, what Isaiah is seeing, is that it will never go into retreat. 
It'll never go into defensive mode. It will never experience loss. It will never be three steps forward and two steps backwards. Isaiah said, I see this God child coming, and when he comes, the kingdom will come with him, and it will only increase and advance, no matter the season, no matter the circumstance. And once again, the cry continued to build for when will God send this God man, this God child, to bring his kingdom on the earth? Now you fast forward 300 or so years, and you come to the end of the Old Testament. And you come to the book of Malachi, and you close it out. And the next book that you find is the book of Matthew. Now, have you ever noticed what is it between the book of Malachi and the book of Matthew? <laughs> There's really nothing. There's a single sheet of paper that is blank. But I want you to know that that single sheet of blank paper represents 400 years of silence. There was no prophets. There was no word of God being inspired by the prophets anymore. They were convinced that God perhaps had forgotten, that they had blown it, that they had messed it up. Will he never come through? Can you imagine this? Do you see this buildup? 4,000 or so years they've been waiting, of, of which 400 of those years now have been complete silence. They're not hearing from God saying, wait a minute, will this child ever come forth? And then... <laughs> In Luke chapter 2, it says, while the shepherds are out in the field, it says, suddenly. 400 years of silence, broken in a moment. It says, suddenly, an angel appeared to the shepherds in the field. And do you want to listen to what it says? Just listen to this. This is Luke 2, verse 11 and 12. I just want you to just hear this. Look how the angel starts off. He says, for unto you is born this day. Wait a minute, wait a minute. What did Isaiah say 700 years prior? For unto you a child is born. The first words out of the angel's mouth is connecting them back to what Isaiah said 700 years ago. He says, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And then verse 12 says, And this will be a sign for you you will find a baby. <laughs> you will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes. Guys, I, Aaron is here right now. And is Judah in there? Okay, you have two babies. Can you imagine this? <laughs> They've been waiting for the seed. And the angel says, the sign has come. You're going to find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes in a manger, a feeding trough. The king of glory has come. Do you know what that means? <laughs> Do you know what this means about Christmas? This means that Christmas is the celebration that the baby broke through. <laughs> the whole idea of Advent is that he got here. <laughs> the child got here. You see the buildup of, of, of Israel pregnant, waiting and longing for 4,000 plus years, 400 years of silence. When will you come? When will the seed of Eve come? When will the son of David come? When will this God child come? Satan has been standing over trying to snuff it out. And what we're celebrating is that God made it. He broke through. Emmanuel, God with us. The word became flesh. For unto you is born this day a child. This is the sign. A baby has come. And they knew immediately that this meant that the child is here. Look at Revelation 12. 
I want you to come back and just see verse 5. Revelation 12, I'll read the end of verse 4 again. It says, the, 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 the tail part of uh, verse 4 says, And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. Verse 5, <laughs> she gave birth to a male child. <laughs> In these two verses, we just span all of this time. This is what it's saying. They kept waiting. They kept longing. They kept seeking. They kept asking. Even in Israel's disobedience, God was faithful to preserve the remnant so that one day you would hear the words that the child has come. Listen, when we celebrate Christmas, this is what we're looking at. We're looking at that the seed has made it. Israel gave birth to the male child. And what this tells me, one thing, is that Advent is a reminder. Advent is the reminder that God is so faithful. He's so faithful. And I felt to just, listen, he's so faithful to fulfill his promises. But here's the key. The older I get, the more frustrating this can get, but here's what I'm recognizing. He is so faithful to fulfill his promises, but it is almost never on your timetable or the way that you expected. <laughs> and you can get really frustrated and bitter and angry if you don't recognize that he will do what he said on his time and when it's ready and the way that he wants to. No one thought this is how God would bring the Messiah, but this is how he did it. And I believe God wants to help you through Advent reconcile the gap between what you thought it would look like and what it is looking like. And he wants you to invite him into the gap and let Advent encourage you that God is faithful even when it's not coming the way you thought or how it look. He will do the very thing that he has asked. Yeah. And she gave birth to a male child. And I just want to finish right here with just one of the things that happens because this child has come. She gave birth to a male child. Ready? Here's, here's what this child brought. One who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God to his throne. This scripture is fascinating. For once again, in one single verse, guys, you have a synopsis of the entire life of Jesus. It starts with his birth and it ends with him being caught up to the throne of God. You know what this includes? His birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. You have Christmas, Easter, and Pentecost all in one verse. <laughs> and what this is saying is that the child who came, when he was caught up, he was caught up so that he could rule the nations with a rod of iron. This is a quotation of Psalm 2. But what often happens is we look at that as purely something to still come in the, in the future moment. And there is something certainly that we're waiting for, but I want you to know the moment he was caught up to his throne, he is already ruling the nations from his heavenly throne. This is so important. The child that came and has now been caught up, he's ruling. When we ache for his return, we're gonna look at this next week, what we're aching for is not for him to start ruling, but for the fullness of his authority to be manifested on the earth. Yes. Ephesians 1, Ephesians 1, this is, what's, this, is, this is saying basically what Ephesians 1 says, that Jesus died, but the Father resurrected him and raised him up to the heavenly places and seated him far above all rule, all authority, all power and dominion above every name. Now ready? Here's what it says. Not only in this age but in the age to come. 
What does that mean, though? He's already ruling there now, in this age. What are we celebrating? That the child got here, and the kingdom of God is here, and he broke in. And because of that, Satan has been disarmed and silenced. Oh, my goodness. When the child came, the kingdom of God came. This is what we're celebrating. The seed made it. The serpent of the head has been crushed. He was dealt a fatal blow at the cross. It's now he knows his time is short and it's running out. But he knows it's over. It's over. That's why he works in deception. Do you know why you work in deception? I played sports. The only reason why you build crazy schemes is because you know the other team is better. <laughs> you have to deceive because you know you can't win straight up. He deceives because he knows. He blinds the minds of, of unbelievers and even Christians to not know that he is defeated, disarmed. If you keep reading this, if you keep reading this and you go into the next part, it gives you a heavenly perspective of what we just read. And it says that Satan used to stand in the council of God and he used to accuse the brethren day and night, but he's been cast out of that place. How? The, according to the Jewish belief, Satan would accuse the brethren day and night, like in the book of Job you see, Zechariah. There's one day that he could not accuse the brethren. You know what day it is? The Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, when there were sacrifices being offered up for the people, which means when Jesus resurrected and ascended to the throne, he sprinkled his blood once and for all on the mercy seat, and Satan had to be released from that place. John 12, 31, as Jesus was getting ready for the cross, look at Jesus' words. He says, now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world, Satan, is being driven out. When? In a future day? No, now. This is what we're celebrating. He's been driven out now. John 16, 11, Jesus then says about his cross and about judgment. Because the prince of this world now stands condemned. Now he's been condemned at the cross. The child has made it. He no longer has a position of authority. He no longer has a position of authority. Come on, I'm going I'm to ask the worship team to come back up. Do you know if you keep reading Revelation 12, in verse 10, it says, Now, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and authority of Christ has come. Are we waiting for salvation? No, it's come. Power has come. The kingdom of God has come. This is what we're celebrating at Advent. That he came, and with that, so did the kingdom. <laughs> o come, O come, Emmanuel, and rescue captive Israel. That was us. <laughs> we were captive, and he has set us free. He has set us free. And man, I just, I just want to, this is how I want to close. I really felt like this, and I asked Caesar, I don't know what he's going to sing, but I know it's always beautiful and heavenly. <laughs> but I did, ask him to, I did ask him to lead us in something that just celebrates that Jesus came. <laughs> and I, feel, I just feel the Lord wants to just mark in our hearts this season that, that no matter all the fun stuff we do with family and all the things we celebrate, I love it all, but that more than anything, man, joy would hit your heart when you think about the seed broke through and the dragon was not able to snuff it out. <laughs> I'm going to ask you to stand with me. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you that you came, Lord.
Thank you that you came, Lord. Again, I find that so often in my own life, I just miss the weight of what we're celebrating because we were born after his coming. <laughs> so we've been graced with the reality that it's almost like we were, our eyes were just opened up one day to the one who already came. <laughs> but I just want you to really just enter in and just, just see that there was generation after generation waiting and longing and looking and just think about what it might have been like to be those shepherds in the field or the wise men who received the word that the one that you've been looking for he's made it and he's here and the kingdom of God is here and the same one who came has now been caught up to the throne of God and as we'll see next week, this is why we long for him to come again. Because we want the one who was caught up and who is now ruling, we want that ruling and that leadership to come in its fullness on the earth. And I just want to share one verse, and then let's just finish with a song of just celebrating that he came. Isaiah 35, 14. I really want to share this as a prayer over you. God spoke to the prophet Isaiah to say to the people of God this, say to those with fearful hearts, say to those with fearful hearts, and this is what God says, be strong and do not fear. Why? For your God is coming to destroy your enemies. He is coming to save you. And the God that they looked for to come has come. So we have all the reason to rejoice. So, Lord, I pray in the midst of a, of a time where there seems to be so much fear, so much unknown, I pray even now as we behold the one who came, I pray, Holy Spirit, would you drive out fear and would you strengthen and establish your people in the joy of the Lord, in the joy of the Lord that the seed has come Strengthen your people right now, Holy Spirit. And let the joy of the Lord arise as we declare that our King has come. In Jesus' name. Praise you, Lord. Praise you, Lord.